Hello, I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. And I'm her daughter, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Heidi and I want to welcome you to Open to Hope Conversations, the podcast. We believe that the greatest gift you can give yourself after a loss is hope, using this moment to connect with others who have not only survived, but thrived. So let's get started. Welcome to the Open to Hope show. I'm your host, Dr. Gloria Horsley, with my daughter and co-host, Dr. Heidi Horsley. Well, Heidi, uh, we've got a really interesting show today. We're going to be talking about addiction and the broken mind, uh, a wonderful book that's been written by one of our authors. So Heidi, you want to introduce her? Sure, I'd love to. We are going to be talking today with Ann Moss Rogers, and she is a TEDx storyteller. She is the award-winning author of Diary of a Broken Mind. Uh, she is the owner of popular Emotionally Naked blog, of, and it's very popular, like I said. She's committed to grief education and suicide prevention, and she does all of this in tribute to her 20-year-old son, Charles, who died by suicide in 2015. And I also need to say something else, Mom. I've gone on her sites, and I've, I've watched a lot of her video, and one of the things I like about Ann Moss is she's very real and candid, and she tells it really like it is, and I appreciate that. So welcome, Ann Moss, to the show. Well, thank you, and that's what being emotionally naked is all about. Okay. That makes sense. And I think that's one of the gifts of grief is that when I went through this awful, devastating experience, I started to lead a more authentic life mm. because all those things that mattered before no longer mattered after my son died. And it was like I got rid of all this, not him, but all the little stuff it was like all this baggage that I no longer had to carry with me. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about Charles. He was the funniest, most popular kid in school. And he was the type of kid that when he walked into the room, all heads would turn in his direction like he had sunshine in his pocket and he was there to hand it out. And he connected with people in a very real way. Mm -hmm. And in a in a world where nobody has time to listen or connect, right. he took the time. Wow. And I guess that is the legacy that I want to carry forward because as funny and as talented he, as he was, that was his greatest gift, letting other people know they mattered. And he mm -hmm. did that by listening and connecting on a very real level with people. Mm -hmm. And you got in your book, his, some of his rap, Oh, cool. music that he wrote or dialogue it's really fun it's fun interesting compelling heart rendering uh all those kinds of things clever brilliant really and yeah his his raps were pretty unbelievable and you know i never saw any of them until after he died mm -hmm. so it was like i got to know my son in a way that i had never seen him before I, I know him better now which is very strange to know somebody better after death than you did in life mm -hmm. so after about the third chapter every other chapter is is a song that kind of tells the family story from his point of view mm -hmm. so you see it the tragedy unfold from my point of view as a parent, but also his, knowing how he felt 
and how I reacted. And sometimes you can see where the way I acted was inappropriate, which is okay. That's part of the story and that's part of being emotionally naked so people can learn from it. And it's part of being human, Amos. It is. Right? I mean, we, at the end of the day, I have to tell my own kids, I'm just a human being. You know what I mean? I'm, a, I'm just trying to figure it out as I go. Right? And I mean, yeah, exactly. And I mean, it was about, it was very cathartic experience because as I'm writing, I'm recognizing mistakes, but you know what? I'm, I'm also recognizing this big, beautiful life that I'm not paying attention to at first. I'm just kind of hyper-focusing on the coulda, woulda, shouldas and that last text message, not really opening up the lens to say, you know, you did so much. You went to family vacations, you cook, you know, you made cakes together, you went to the beach. And there was just so much activity. And I think it was once I watched all those old VHS movies that I that I saw that my son was brought up in a house of love and that right. it wasn't something I did. Right. Now how did you find his rap? I mean, where was it? Mm -hmm. He, he had them in those little uh, composition books, you know, the composition books that they have in school. Mm -hmm. He started writing in those, I'd say around middle school, but he wasn't as dedicated to it until he was an adolescent. So it was a spiral bound notebook and he would keep them in a backpack. And I remember when he went to boarding school and we didn't have a boarding school budget and it wasn't plan A, but he went and he, he would carry them around. So he might not have enough room for his textbooks, but he always had enough room for his rap notebooks. And he would have like 20 of them. Wow. So, so he wrote the rap. He was, uh, as I, he, he was really suffering depression towards the end. Uh, that kind of thing, feelings badly about himself. You didn't know what, you didn't know how bad it was, but you had paid money for him to go to, to wash that school in Utah. And you, I kind of mortgaged your whole house. You'd given wow. almost everything you could. And, and then yeah. he called one last time for more and tell us about that. And that was that phone call I got stuck on for so many years and we just sold the house. Well, it was to pay for treatment and also get out of that county because he was the victim of police harassment. I mean, they were, he had been sexually assaulted by a police officer and I was like, yeah. no more, you know, I, I've had enough. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to move and he calls me and I don't know it, but he's going through withdrawal. Mm. And so the conversation doesn't make a lot of sense. And I'm just feeling the despair. And you know, this podcast is about hope and I could just feel it draining from him, but I didn't have a place to put his despair, like a definition. So I eventually landed on, oh, he's, you know, headed for rock bottom and he's going to ask for help. And in his case, rock bottom was suicide. So that rock bottom myth, I don't believe it. <laughs> So his was a complete draining of hope. And I feel like had I been educated on suicide and suspect, suspected that's what it was, I would have reacted differently than I did on that last phone call because I was just still trying to figure 
what's he saying? What does he mean? What's happening? Is he depressed? Is he addicted? Is it both? And of course, it took me two years to piece all that together and figure out exactly um, what was the matter. Talk about those two years. How did, how did you get through it? And, and what, what did you learn? And what would you suggest to others? Well, I think the first thing I told myself, as, as brutal as it was right whenever moment when grief would attack me or ambush me, it will never be as bad as getting the news. That part is over. It will never, ever hurt that much again. And if I can make it through that, if I can survive that, I can survive the day to day. I think that's an important piece of information that you just gave people, you know, because people are always saying, oh my gosh, I can't take it anymore. It's, and like you said, the worst thing that's happened is, is in the past. It's finding exactly. out that your, your child, your sibling, whoever has died. And you have to feel the feelings. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people kind of want to push it away or numb it. And they're going for anything that might make them feel better, whether that is a glass of wine or a pint of ice cream. Mm -hmm. But both of those are not really healthy coping strategies and they can really get out of hand. So I started writing because that's what was helping me and it was helping me make discoveries and it, and it hurt to write. But when I was done for the day, it was like this release and I could feel the emotional healing. Well, what's interesting, Ann Moss, is you've turned to writing to feel the emotional healing, and your son did as well with his yeah. rap, right? And his journals. And you know, I didn't recognize that until someone else pointed it out to me. Mm -hmm. And that I'd pretty much gone in his direction, except that I didn't pick up the drugs and alcohol piece of, mm -hmm. piece of it. In fact, I cut, I, I didn't do drugs, but I cut alcohol out of my life. Because mm -hmm. because you can't heal if you can't feel. Right. And I was noticing that people were getting stuck. The people who were getting stuck were the people who were telling me, oh, I have to have three or four glasses of wine every night just to get it, get through this. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, man, I, I don't like where they are right now. And then I would meet with other people that were talking about, you know, going on vacation and doing normal things seven years later. Mm -hmm. And I, that's where I want to be. So I said, if I, I can't heal, if I can't feel some cutting out the booze. Right. So, so did you do group when you're, when you're hearing different people? You what I did a drop-in group, and then I did a suicide loss group. I did the out of the darkness walks. I formed a little kind of group of mothers locally. We've lost children to either overdose or suicide, and then there's a sister in it too. And we communicate a lot, you know, when one of us is struggling or one of us has heard something about something else. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of exercise. Um, you know, just walking, just getting out there and pounding the pavement and being outdoors was very helpful to me. And the picture of the James River is behind me. I went to the river a lot because just listening to the water and kind of finding some peace and mindfulness that mm -hmm. the water kind of triggers that for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I am 
if you've heard of the strategy mindfulness, I employed it and I incorporated it into my life. So it wasn't just one thing. Writing was the main one. Mm -hmm. But um, I incorporated a lot of strategies and support. People have got to have, we're not meant to go through this alone. Right. And, and everything you're talking about is research-based. I mean, you might not know that because you did it and it worked and it helped. But when you look at the research, you know, it says that peer support and adaptive coping skills are what help and that trauma gets trapped in the body and we need to move our bodies as well. Um, and you did, you, you've incorporated all this into your life, which is I, great. I did. I mean, I didn't want to be stuck because I saw a few people who were stuck and they were bitter years and years later. And I just decided that my son would not want me to live that way. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there were days where I held on the side of that big black hole with the tips of my fingernails, but I wasn't going to let that pilot light of hope burn out no matter what. I was mm -hmm. going to go do something that sparked and change something so I could reframe it. And those feelings are temporary. You know, I mean, when you get one of those big grief waves, you just have to go with it. <laughs> you know, you have to sink into it. And then just when you think you can't take it any longer, it lifts. Mm -hmm. And over time, it becomes something else. So at first, it's this ugly, nasty thing that you want to push away. And later, it's something you welcome because it's the only tie to the one you love. Mm -hmm. And now I feel like I kind of want to go cuddle with those memories instead mm -hmm. of pushing them away, which is a big change from how it was at first. You know, it's interesting you say that because I know uh, some of the people that we've talked to and interviewed do have trouble giving up some of the trauma because they feel like it keeps them close to the person. Mm -hmm. But we try to tell them that uh, it's been years since my son was killed and, and I have great memories of him, even better because the grief doesn't get in the way. Mm -hmm. yeah. We have funny stories and, you know, like you say, cuddle, cuddle stuff, not, right. not scary stuff or whatever. But talk, would you talk a little bit about the stigma of suicide? Yeah. You know, when you lose a child, people don't know what to say and they don't know what to do. It, it's awkward. But when you lose them to suicide and they had, you know, an addiction to heroin, you know, you can triple that. So I would run into people and I would start to talk to, about him and they would cut me off mid-sentence. And I'll be honest with you, it pissed me off. I, you know, I don't know any other way to put it. And it made me angry because mm -hmm. it was like they were expecting me to erase them from my family tree and take my ugly naked mama grief and go, you know, <laughs> go, go home. And then I could come out when I felt better. Yeah. And what I recognized is that my son died by suicide because I didn't recognize the signs that could have been bullet points under the phrase, what do people thinking of suicide say, right? Mm -hmm. And I decided to write a newspaper article. Wow. And it took me five months to write 1,200 words. Oh my gosh, that article is so ugly after just one month that I kept at it and I kept writing it. And when it did publish in February, it went viral. Wow. And that's when I recognized, number one, other people are struggling with this issue too. Uh -huh. And 
it just made me feel less isolated because everybody says you're not alone, you're not alone, but it's another thing to feel like you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And I recognize, oh my gosh, I really am not alone because, you know, 2,000 people shared their family story on uh, the comments. Well, and I, people I read every one of them. <laughs> You gave people permission not to sweep this under the rug and keep it a secret and be feel shame. Exactly. You came out and said, look, this is what happened and we need to talk about this. Yeah, I kicked stigma in the face and said, I, I'm not standing for this. I am going for it. And that doesn't mean that when the newspaper article came out, I wasn't completely panicked because I was. I was like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Mm -hmm. And then I had to start breathing. I'm like, this is what, this is what you're about. Mm -hmm. This is what you set forth to do. And it's going to be uncomfortable. And there's going to be times when it is just uncomfortable to talk about and uncomfortable to write about. And you're going to do it anyway. When that newspaper order, I was not, I was more than scared. I had to pull over to the side of the road and do deep breathing exercises. And I thought, okay, I'm good. And I started home and I had to pull over again. I mean, I, I you know, it's like a five minute drive from where I was when the editor called me and gave me the news and I had to pull over three times to, to start breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. And so you got, you ended up doing a TED talk. I did, and I applied for three years and didn't even, hardly made their radar on it. And I thought, boy, I'm, you know, is this age prejudice? Is it suicide? Is it, I'm that boring? Am I that terrible? And so I was kind of looking at other places to apply around the country, and they called me. And they said, a friend of mine said, I put your name in a hat for this upcoming TEDx women event. You can't apply. You can only be, um, you know, nominated. And I've nominated you. And I was like, really? And then it came down between me and another woman. And they had 12 minutes left. And they couldn't decide, so they gave her six minutes, and they gave me six minutes. Wow! So, and and you've you've actually uh, left your digital digital marketing business that you were doing, and you're focused on this. So I I wrote a post on my blog called "The Final Forty Eight Hours," and this young lady reached out to me two days later, and said that reading a post from a mother who had felt such devastating pain had inspired her to reach out to her own parents and ask for help. Wow. And that was just a turning point for me. So when I go back to my digital marketing business and I start getting leads online for plumbers, it just wasn't doing it for me anymore. I mean, the universe seemed to be pushing me in this way. And I kept thinking I would rekindle that passion for digital marketing. And I just, didn't really, not the traditional sense. So I started applying those skills to suicide prevention, which has worked out very well. But I just, I just had to sell the business. I just wasn't into it anymore. Now, what kinds of things have you done as far as digital marketing unique? Well, I 
I've written a page. So there are people who go online to look for specific ways to die. It's specific about method. They'll go to Google and they'll, they'll type in a phrase. So I had to do a blog post with that cringeworthy title. And then what I did is I put a video and resources on the page. And I thought, this will never work. But I did your typical digital marketing thing. I had to share it a lot, which it had this title. And it's, it's really, really hard to share this particular title. But you have to do it every once in a while to maintain rank. So I put it out there. And what, hap what started happening is that over the years, I've, I've gotten rank. So I rank on the first page of Google, sometimes at the bottom, sometimes near the top. It attracts 4,500 people to the blog and probably about 2,000 people on YouTube per month. Wow. People looking for that way to die. And then several people will comment. And I, oftentimes I'll get a message that says, this blog post saved my life last night. Tell them what the blog post is. Uh, I have to offer a trigger warning, mm -hmm. but the name of the blog post is How to Hang Yourself. And it's so interesting because you, you, people that are desperate and thinking of ending their life go to this blog post feeling like you're going to give them that information, and then they find resources, and you end up, in, many in some cases, saving their life, literally. Right, or helping them save their own life, however I like you want that. I like that. You know, look at it. But that gives me that purpose of, you know, I'll be having a terrible day and then I'll get one of those notes and I keep them all and I screenshot them and I keep them in a folder because I need that. And then I started thinking, well, this is research. Right. So Absolutely. then I started putting it in a document. Mm -hmm. But I'm not a PhD, so it's kind of digital marketing uh, type research, but I can see surges and I can see that when, like there was a death in England a few months ago of one of their uh, soap opera stars. And I noticed this huge trajectory of people coming to that page. And, and it was the morning that the coroner had announced how she died by suicide. So once they released this, that report and started putting it in headlines, it triggered people and they started searching. Wow. wow. Interesting. And I, I had heard that searches increased after things like that. But yeah. now I can specifically say it came out at 9 a.m. And by 9.30 a.m., my site was getting a ton of hits, mostly from the U.K., so, so Ann Moss, for those people out there that are looking for hope after a suicide loss, what would you say to them? I'd say that you just got to believe that you will forgive yourself and that you will learn to live love all over again. You just have to give it some time. And it, that process is not easy, it's not fast, but that wound can heal. And once it does heal, your life is different, but you can still have a beautiful life. Well, thank you so much, Ann Moss, for all you're doing. And uh, give us uh, the, where people can find you and any resources that you would like people to know of. 
uh, amosrogers.com is my speaking site. And then my blog is called Emotionally Naked. So either one there. And I also have a lot of free eBooks if anybody wants to download um, how to support a friend who's lost someone to suicide. I have coping strategies for grief and loss. And that has a whole list of things that I didn't use and that other people used and ones that I used as well. Well, thank you, Ann Moss. Those are great resources. And uh, I love the fact that you've used them yourself and you're uh, still on your journey. You know, 2015 is not that long ago in this it's world not. of grief and loss. And um, good luck to you and all that you're learning and doing and, and helping other people do. Thank you so much. And thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you all so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ann Moss. And thank you so much for getting rid of the stigma and making it okay to talk candidly about how not only you lost Dylan, but how we found hope again. I mean, Charles, I'm sorry. So yes, getting rid of the stigma of not only how you lost Charles, but how you found hope again after he died. We appreciate that. Thank you so thank much. You so much. And thanks everybody for joining us today. And Heidi and I always want to remind you that if you've lost hope, please lean on ours until you find your own. And God bless. I'm Dr. Heidi Horsley. You have been listening to Open to Hope, the podcast. You can follow Open to Hope on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To learn more, visit us at opentohope.com and go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe. I'm Dr. Gloria Horsley. Join us again next week for another Open to Hope conversation, where we invite you to lean on our hope until you find your own.